This is the fundamental contributor to our inability to die well and wise or at all. We get annihilated, but we don't tend to die because die means that you're participating actively in what the dying is asking of you, not doing to you, asking of you. Today on the podcast, Wisdom in Death and Dying, a conversation between Stephen Jenkinson and Zaya and Maurizio Benazzo. Welcome to the Sounds of Sand presented by Science and Non-Duality, offering dialogue on the bridge between science and spirituality. If you're ready, we'll see you on the other side. Welcome to Science and Non-Duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That matter is energy. Energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is about. There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a language without objectifying. But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse. But if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. Welcome back to The Sounds of Sand, a podcast presented by Science and Non-Duality. And we want to thank you so much for all the wonderful feedback and comments on our first episode last week. And we invite you to leave a good review on Apple Podcasts, which helps a lot in spreading the word and letting people know about our new initiative here with The Sand Podcast. And you can email us with your comments, questions, suggestions for future episodes, or just to say hi at podcast at scienceandnonduality.com. And today we bring you an in-depth and somewhat controversial conversation from Science and Non-Duality's Death and Dying Online Summit from 2020. Longtime friend and sand contributor Stephen Jenkinson offers a frank dialogue with the SAND co-founders, Zaya and Maurizio Benazzo. And this conversation took place during the first months of COVID. You'll hear Stephen talk about the plague, and he's referring to COVID in that case. And in the conversation, they also touch upon the meaning of death and dying in our death-phobic culture. And the idea of death as a god, the differences between death culture in North America and Europe, and finally they get into Stephen's perspectives on euthanasia and the idea of end of life care. And it's a really resonant and authentic conversation. And we hope you enjoy it as much as we did. And now to introduce our guest today. Stephen Jenkinson is an activist, teacher, author, and farmer. He's the founder of the Orphan Wisdom School in Tramore, Canada, and the author of four books, including Die Wise, A Manifesto for Sanity and Soul. This award-winning book is about grief and dying and the great love of life. And stick around to the end of the podcast and to hear a musical collaboration between Stephen and his partner, musical partner, Gregory Hoskins. So that'll be at the end of the episode. 
And you can find out more about Stephen's work at orphanwisdom.com. And Zaya Maurizio Bonazzo are the co-founders and directors of Science and Non-Duality. And they offer many events, postings, media, and several films, including the most recent documentary, The Wisdom of Trauma, which has been viewed by over 6 million people and offered in 23 countries and territories. And you'll hear the voice of Zion Maritzi on many of these episodes of they, as they often host and lead the interviews, as they are the primary visionaries behind science and non-duality. And you can find out more about them on the website scienceandnonduality.com. And now I bring you Stephen Jenkinson and Zaya and Maurizio Bonazzo. So welcome, Stephen. Thank you for being with us today. Thank, thank you for the invitation. By the way, I should say before we begin or as we begin that I was listening carefully to the list of attributes and accolades that people were showering over their experience, I guess it was yesterday, and uh, how they're feeling today. And I think you have me in here as an antidote to all of that excitement. (laughs) (laughs) You know, we need that. This is exactly where I want to start, actually, the antidote. So we live in a culture that does not like endings, a culture that likes exponential growth, um, anything that has to do with beginnings, with growth, with expansion, extraction. It's very welcome in our Western culture. And that has, um, so the, the inquiry is like how our denial of that has led us to be, to live, to create and face the current crisis and challenges in the world, the extinction of species, the climate collapse. How is that connected? Is it connected to the denial of death? And mm. then, yeah. Do you know, I think in order to engage in a denial of death, I'm familiar with the book as you are, the title but I think it's probably overstated. It's not clear to me that at least I am part of a culture that denies death. In order to deny death, you have to have some kind of engagement that's prolonged enough and, and sustained enough to, um, to call into deep disrepute or disregard the thing you're engaged with. I don't see that. So I, I'm, I'm suggesting to you that I don't think we're in a death denying culture. Uh, that credits the culture with too much alertness around dying. I think probably that we're in the Western culture to generalize is uh, much more death phobic than it is death denying. And the difference sounds subtle uh, and it probably is, but I think it goes like this. When When you're deeply fearful of something, you're not necessarily informed about it but you know just enough to stay away as best as you can, right? So it is, in a sense, an informed position, death phobia, but it's not informed by the realities of dying. It's informed by the prejudices that we bring to it, which was the, actually the basis of your question, I think. So, so what might the connection be? Well, you know, m- my country, Canada, it was a, a consequence of spontaneous mostly involuntary and mass migration from Europe. 
and it was it was an accident. It would never wanted to be a country. It didn't know how to be a country, and it still doesn't. It's not a unified culture. It's a European fantasy that has never quite happened, and that's what America is. It's a European fantasy. It's not. It's not a North American thing at all, and so and the vision was everything could be better than it was. Every, every people could be free of the old tribal dilemmas and 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 the rest. Of course, the first thing they unpacked when they arrived on these shores was all the old tribal dilemmas and everything they were trying to escape. That's the nature of escape: is that you drag with you the thing you're trying to escape. If you don't do so, then the mechanics of your escape are useless. It has no foil to engage, right? So, uh, as a consequence of that, we left behind so many things that gave us a kind of could have given us a sense of cultural continuity over time. And when that's ruptured, and it certainly has been for North Americans, then there's no continuity experienced between the living and the dead either, because it's the culture that establishes your lived engagement with what is no longer so, no longer here, minus that cultural continuity, you can't experience it existentially or, or spiritually or in any other way. And it becomes an allegation. And the, the deep disrepair of the thing or the disintegration of it has resulted in this notion of personal truth or personal experience that that's the only kind of truth there is. In actual fact, there's nothing personal about the truth. The more personal and interior you make death, the less profound and less available it becomes. Okay, can we unpack this last piece? This is like, a, yeah. So the less we make it, the more we make it personal, personal. the less we are capable to be present with it, to be... Um, well, the, perhaps the emphasis is on the wrong syllable here. So the idea that we are going to be present to death, I think, puts too much emphasis on our orientation. Yes. Uh -huh. So here's the thing. Death is a god. This, this is, I think, enormously useful and compelling thought to think. Death is a god. It's a deity. In order to come to an understanding of what this possibly means, you have to investigate your understanding of what you think constitutes deity or godliness. And when you do that, you, you, you find out very quickly that many of the attributes that you heap upon the divine may not be divine attributes at all. They are what we want from the divine, but they may not be divine in any way at all. For example, commandments. To just to choose an obvious example, the notion that the divine makes demands of humans, and that's what it's there for, to get satisfied by us, sounds like an idea that we came up with, to be honest. It doesn't sound very divine to me. It sounds very graspingly human to me. So if you're willing to take some understanding of what divine is and apply it to the understanding of dying, then you might credit dying with a kind of sentience that's not human, but it's not anti-human either. It's not anti-life. It's the origin of life. 
It's a life force. Death is a life force. It's the origin of life. It's If I had a handful of dirt in my hand right now, and I showed it to you and I asked you, how do we come by this? The answer in, inescapably is things have to die to end up with that dirt. No death, no dirt. No dirt, no life. Very simple. Yeah. But in a, in a kind of growth-addicted culture, in a limit-defying limit culture such as the one you characterize that we're all participating in, you know, be not surprised that we're trying to do, we're trying to live a life of hydroponic spirituality, if you will. Spirituality that has no earth, no, only sustained by a, a sort of a, a flood of chemically laced liquid. I never thought of that until just now, but it strikes me as I love it. That yeah. works kind of, no? I love it. Yeah. Hydroponic spirituality <laughs> is I'm gonna I want to tattoo it or so I'll make a sticker. It's totally <laughs> a great definition of where we are. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So okay, so how is death a god then? Well, it has an an a, a presence so adamant, but so um, undetermining of the consequence. Here's what I mean. Uh, I believe you're going to play a, a story song uh, in a little while called Fate, or a piece of, of the fate, which is in, actually in four sections. Now, this word fate comes to us from the Romans. Fatum was the verb that the best way to characterize it in English is to say that which the gods have said. Now, you know what fate means today? Fate means nothing you can do. And so it's no surprise that there's a very close al alliance in contemporary English between fate and fatal. You see, nothing you can do. You involuntarily come to it and you succumb rather than submit. That kind of idea. So in actual fact, though, the Romans understood the world to have been made by what the gods said. The Romans didn't invent this idea, but they were good practitioners of it. But there's a, there's a half that's missing in the contemporary understanding. Fate never meant that's the way it's going to go no matter what we do. Fate meant this. Now the gods have spoken. That's what physics and chemistry is. That's what evaporation and photosynthesis is. That's what gravity and light, and that's what the gods said. Now that they have spoken, what will you do? So that remains to be seen, you see? And that's not a given, and it's not foreclosed upon. That's the way the God of death works. The God of death, if you will, speaks your end to you. And The God of death does not speak of your end only at the end. The God of your death has been whispering in your ear the whole time. And that's what everyone's death before yours is for. It's for you to practice so that you don't come to your dying as a grasping, desperate amateur. It's a very unbecoming circumstance, no? I'll give you a chance to respond in a second. Sorry, I'm in a bit of a roll here. It's okay. Beautiful. Yeah. One more piece to it then. Yes. 
the allegation constantly is that everybody knows they're going to die. And sooner or later in this conversation, we're going to come around to the plague, no doubt. And you're going to ask me some version of, do I think that the plague has heightened our awareness around dying? But for the moment, <clears throat> let me make this observation for you. No. Okay. Apparently, we're all from the same tribe then. So I will ask a room full of people that when I used to be able to be in a room full of people in the old days, and I would say, um, everyone in this room who knows they're going to die, please raise their hand. And of course, they came to see me, so they figure the right answer is yes. Even though some of the new age people there might have different plans that don't include dying, just, you know, <laughs> transformation and things of this kind. But the lion's share of people will raise their hand, quite sure that they're on the right side of history and God and this conversation and me. And then I, I developed the following idea. I say something like, do you know, there was a time in my life when everybody knew there was enough oil for everyone forever. They did know that. Now, the truth of the matter was that that was never true. We know that it was never true, but I didn't say it was true. I said that people knew it. And how could you tell that they knew it? And the answer is by how they behaved and how they lived their lives. And that knowledge informed their buying practices you know, their, their decisions about how to go into debt and for what and so on and so on. But it was never true, but it was known nonetheless, and it determined how people live. Take out oil and put in death and then wonder whether or not you can trace the presence of the knowledge of death and how people in the West tend to live their lives ordinarily not in a spectac spectacular, excuse me, spectacular moments, but in the ordinary moments. Can you see any evidence at all that this death is a known thing, regardless of the fact that they can claim that they know it, but you can't find the signs, you see. What you find is the signs of aversion, of choosing otherwise. And so the remarkable the, the deified understanding of dying is that you can assume all of these positions of prejudice and torment and, and, and vainglory and so on. And the God of death is simply nodding, not arguing, not disputing, not forcing him or her or itself upon you, simply understanding that the, the fullness of time will deliver the verdict on how likely your prejudices are to prevail. It's a very powerful piece of business and it's there all the time and it's fundamentally not personal. It's not the God of your death. You don't own your death any more than you own your life or your body. These things are on loan, right? Temporarily with some kind of trust involved. And I would say that your death and mine even though I'm using the possessive there, but the death that will come to you and to me is something that's also loaned to us at the moment of our inception, not when we're diagnosed with some kind of cancer, you know, acres before then. So this is what I mean by uh, death as a deity. Hmm. 
just to continue that, like what comes to in my psyche is the what I see is the tantric path and how that is being worshipped for centuries as a deity in in India the 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 burning gods and the, the relationship like yes Kali is a, is a is a representation of that and he's been worshipped on daily basis but I don't think this is the kind of worshipping of that you're talking about how does it look like uh, that as a god in our contemporary lives how would li our lives uh, feel I don't want to look like uh, but feel like how would we move around and breathe life if our lives are infused by the perfume of death? <laughs> yeah, very good. Well, first of all, the fact that you have to ask the question signals mm -hmm. to all of us listening that it's not the case. Yeah. If it were the case, it would be a kind of a self-evident thing. It would be something like like gravity or sunlight, we would say, ah, oh, this is how it works. And, you know, we're informed by it every day. You have to ask because you don't see it. And I have to wonder it, about it because I don't either. So that's the first thing to notice is that we're laboring in the absence of this presence and this understanding. See? So, so can you imagine, for example, if the God of death took our unwillingness to engage it personally. Can you imagine what the response might be even of a godly presence? Could it be something, could there be some kind of retribution, some kind of punishment, some kind of payback for our failure to keep up our end of the arrangement with death? You could well imagine it. And of course, there's lots of mythology about that very thing. And the worship of dying might include the effort to placate it, to just give it enough milk and cookies to leave us alone until the fateful hour kind of thing. In actual fact though, what I'm talking about has nothing to do with worship in that sense or placating in that sense. I'm talking about something that's closer to an understanding of friendship than it is of placating or paying or bargaining, friendship. So what's the nature of friendship, as I understand it, goes something like this. The deep mark of a friend is the willingness to risk the friendship for the sake of the friend that you're claiming, such that on the other side of the interaction, the friendship may have broken, but the willingness to proceed in its name is still there. So by the same token, if death comes to you early in your life, you might experience that as a betrayal, and no doubt many people have done so, especially in the death of children, which I was attending to quite a bit when I was working. But it's no less a faithful God if the God sits beside a four-year-old girl with emphysema or leukemia than it is sitting beside someone who's afflicted with COVID-19 in a hospital right now as we speak and dying accordingly, right? In other words, there's no punishment in our engagement with endings. The only way it becomes a punishment to us is because we insist that it's not part of the natural order of things. That if it's natural, 
It means it's agreeable to us. Well, that's not what natural means. Every time they sell you toilet paper with the word natural on it, you should just not use the word natural for the rest of your life because you lose track of what it means. I mean, the wild is a very natural occurrence and it's not very interested in our domesticating instincts or our, our desire to have a safe and managed life, for example. So, so the, the God of death is much more like a wild animal than, than the part of us that wants to be soothed and reassured about things. Mm. Yeah, when you say that, it also it comes to mind when, when we hear uh, that a young person is dying or is ill, immediately what we do is like, but why? It makes no sense. It, it, it should not be. Like we want to argue and wrestle rationally uh, because we believe that life, that death has an order. It's, it's, it has its place in the order of things. But what you're saying is there is no order, there is no logic, there is no, we can't really wrestle with death. Uh, no, you can. And, and I think you should from time to time. Just understand that you will lose. <laughs> yeah. Right? But don't forget Rilke's beautiful observation that we are not here to win. We're here to be defeated by greater and greater things. And if we proceed that way, we can brag about what defeated us. And to be brought low by death is a very honorable outcome to an honorably lived life. It just takes an enormous act of the will or other things in you to be willing to have that be so instead of having things work out according to your understanding of what the, the sequence should properly be. Look, we, we all know that uh, it's not actually true that there's not a, a general natural order to things wherein the old, the death of the old precedes the death of the young. That's, that's a recognizable <clears throat> part of the natural order of things, but it's not, Absolutely so. The exceptions are as naturally occurring as the order is. This is where we run into very hard times because we try to turn this apparently meaningless flip of the usual order into one of two things. Either random chaos, we make meaninglessness a meaning, or... We go to punishment, payback, you know, bad outcome, too many hamburgers, too much stress, yeah. whatever it was. And that's the reason why. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And that, again, is very much part of our Western culture. Knowledge, uh, predictability, control is how we live. That's how, uh, what, we believe sustains our lives that kind of and i i just want to go back to what you said so in a way our european ancestors coming here they brought their trauma they brought their wounds and they um 
actually the rest was ways to uh, run away from those wounds. So all this need to control and to predict and to exploit comes from the unwillingness to be with those um, wounds, ancient pain. So the question is, is like, what is at the sorrow of our Western soul? What is the hollowness or the sorrow at the heart of our Western civilization? Is it we've lost our sense of belonging, our sense of, yeah, I mean, in Europe, where we come from, death is part of life, it's part of the village, like, uh, when somebody dies, the body is carried through the village, the Everybody village comes it, together, yeah. and eats together, and cries together, and celebrates, and these were the old ways of being with endings, like you said, mm -hmm. was not a private affair. There was no such a thing as private. And here we are now have the fancy mortuaries that everything is behind closed doors and looks perfect, looks controllably. Yeah. How? Yeah, and you don't want to disturb your neighbor with your death. You know, you don't want to show the, your grief out loud. You don't want to show the, the casket going through the streets. You know, you try to hide it and sterilize. No, it's okay. You know, where we are from, it's like, ah. It's a celebration. Okay. So here's a question for you. Uh, I get to ask a question now. Yay. Could go something like this. Who are we to you? Who are um, we North yeah. Americans? Yeah. To you Europeans. Yes. So Beautiful. give me a second to for, to to elaborate the question. Do you ever think of us? I know you live in North America, so I have to ask you to imagine this, right? Mm -hmm. But do you ever think of us and then ask me if we ever think of you? <sighs> Who have we become to you? So this is a very distressing possibility that I'm suggesting to you here, because I would like you to consider the real possibility that what North Americans are is what Europeans became. We are the near future of this place that you were so um, admiring of just a few minutes ago. Beautiful. You see, this is exactly folks what globalization is. Yes. Okay. Globalization is not heading towards an Italian village in the Alps. That's not what it's going to. It's going to the reason that we're having this discussion. This is where it's headed. This is the global village that it wants to make, where there's no fundamental distinction between how you do your dying in Italy and how we do our dying in Canada and so on and so on. No, that's one. Two. You know, uh, the answer to your question that I would give you is homelessness. In a word, yeah. the principal affliction of the West is the inability to belong. So you claim ownership instead of being able to belong. You claim dominion instead of being able to belong. And catch this, the etymology of the word belong tells us plainly that it does not mean what we use it to mean today. When we say belong, we say, ah, all my sorrows are gone 
especially the sorrow mm-hmm. around solitude and loneliness, because I belong to something greater than myself and all is well. I mean, it doesn't work in China, but never mind that. The actual word means this. The prefix. How should I put this to you? The prefix in in Old English intensifies the word that follows it. So the BE in front is not the verb to be as we use it today. The BE in front tells you that whatever follows this has been deepened and intensified and made more adamant as a consequence of this prefix. So lo and behold, if you achieve a belonging, it's not the end of your longing. It's an intensification of your longing. And the the capacity to live in longing is the antidote to living in desire and striving. Even though they're used today as synonyms, they're not. If you've ever longed after someone or something, you know very well that the longing itself puts you in the presence of what you're longing for. Whereas desire clearly signals that you're living in the absence of what you desire. It's fascinating. The other thing is desire is forever trying to satisfy itself to to get the object of its desire and to end the desiring. It doesn't work for very long, but it works for a while. But the goal of longing is not to stop longing. The goal of longing is to be ever a more adequate practitioner of it. And so I think a citizen of an established culture understands this and lives accordingly. Whereas the citizen of an uncertain and shaky pseudo culture like North America is forever confusing longing with desire and ownership with being able to inhabit, I mean, deeply inhabit a place without having to own it, you see. So our homelessness, that's a consequence of the migration that we talked about earlier. This is the fundamental contributor to our inability to die well and wise or at all. We get annihilated, but we don't tend to die because die means that you're participating actively in what the dying is asking of you, not doing to you, asking of you. I want to go in the two pieces that I would like to explore with you. And the first is the longing. I, I, you know, that, that kind of longing is also at the heart of all the mystical traditions, correct? And the longing comes from often that we are separate from God. And the longing is to go back to, uh, to oneness. And, and, so how do we, like as a spiritual practitioner, how do we wrestle with this apparent paradox for the mind that life is eternal, you know, it doesn't have a beginning and an end, and at the same time, it's finite in this human form. And the longing that uh, is, is connected to that realization of finite and infinite um, how do you, what do you have to reflect on that? Okay. 
Uh, first of all, the proper answer is I don't really know. I mean, that's an honest answer. But me not knowing has never prevented me from wondering out loud about something. So I'll try to do that now. Well, first of all, it's not just human beings who end. It's not just human life that's finite. From what I can tell, every life form has a finitude as part of its nature. You see? So we can take instruction from that if we're willing and recognize that, that finitude is not a human uh, burden or a human affliction. We appear to be the only life form that tries to engineer alternatives to that. I'm not thinking of Egon Musk and all of that stuff, although that too. But I'm thinking even of all the spiritual practices that appear to be designed to leap over the chasm of this separation that you're alluding to and re-achieve some kind of oneness. Presumably, if this oneness exists, well, there's no real dying because there's no real ending because it's all a continuum and isn't that great? You know, back to the mothership, that kind of thing. Well, that, that understands dying to be some kind of booby prize, some kind of consequence of the separation, you see? And this is a very biblical understanding, I should tell you. It's directly from the Judeo-Christian tradition that, you know, the book of Genesis tells you very plainly, there was no death into the world, excuse me, in the world until there was disobedience. Mm -hmm. And disobedience prompted, uh, the, the, the consequence of disobedience was punishment. And the punishment was not only dying, but knowing that you were going to die. That was the principal affliction. So this is a, in my view, I just say this humbly, it's a terrible misapprehension of what's granted to you. If we really were going to last forever, this would be horrible news for the world, wouldn't it? I mean, we're lasting 80 or 90 years and it's bad enough for the world. Eternity would be unendurable for the world. And I'm not sure it'd be great for us either. Right? And, and I, I sound glib, but I, I do really mean that. Right? So finally, I would say that the act of longing is the union. That's the union. It doesn't come from the goneness of all of that. The ability to long after the union with the divine, let's say, just to say it very briefly, is your union with the divine. Mm -hmm. That ability to long after union with the divine was granted to you by the divine. You see, just enough separateness to prompt you into longing, just enough longing to, to, in the better times of your life, to assure you about the separateness. What an amazing architecture. So, speriamo. Speriamo. <laughs> <laughs> I'm still, I'm still five questions behind. You, you said in one of your, in, in, in one of the interview we heard, you were talking about euthanasia. And that's something that really struck me how you presented it. And it was, it made so much sense to me, but it was so from the, I didn't expect it. I didn't expect your analysis because I thought that's perfect. We can choose. I, You basically are busting all my myths about, I thought I was so 
in touch with my desire not to die. I don't want any pain. And then when it's too much, I'm gonna do that. And I thought I was the coolest thing in town and you kick my butt left and right. Can you please talk about this, this uh, desire that we have as a culture to control life and control the end of this care? Because that was so fascinating and I want to share it with our, with our family here, with our circle. This is not going to win me any um, friends, what I'm about to say. Well, you want me as a friend <laughs> on that because it was so left-wing for me, left side. It came so much from, from the other side that it completely rocked my, my world and made me see the whole aspect. You you really cracked me in, in thousands of pieces, and I thank you for that. Very sinister, no? Sinistre. <laughs> Sinistro. Very sinister, yeah. Okay. Let me see what I can do about this. I haven't thought about this for quite a while. You're asking me my antique things. Um, <clears throat> well, I'm, I live in a country where euthanasia is completely legalized across all the dominion. Uh, and this is fairly recent. And I was there when it was illegal and criminal to do so. I was there when this was being challenged and wondered about. I was there when the really rancorous discussions were going on. And I was gone by the time they legalized it. So what I'm about to tell you comes from being there, not from, not from having an attitude or opinion about it. So if you listen carefully to the people who are advocating for euthanasia, one of the things you heard consistently was that there's no merit in suffering beyond a certain point and that euthanasia is a solution to that suffering. Okay. And it's particularly uh, useful for the existential suffering unto death that its advocates believe is an inherent part of dying. That's the big one. So the prejudice about death that the pro-euthanasia uh, brigade carried went like this. Dying is inherently suffering engendering. Okay. Beyond a certain point, we can't remain conscious and endure that suffering. That's how bad it is to die. And so we either tranquilize and sedate ourselves to kingdom come until we're taken out, or we take the process into our hands and decide when and if and how. If you pay attention to the, the formula, one of the things you quickly see, and you alluded to it, is that euthanasia is an exercise, another exercise in personal dominion. That's principally what it is. And in so doing, it fails to challenge the fundamental prejudice about dying that it carries, which is this, dying is inherently suffering making. Why? Because you don't get a choice in it. That's why, because it's bigger than you. But why is that suffering making? See, the answer is, if you live in a culture that's addicted to self-determination, then death is the great insult. You see, it's a kind of moral um, no man's land. So as I saw this begin to unfold, one of the questions I began to ask is, are you sure that euthanasia absolves you of suffering. In other words, what makes you think that reconstituting self-determination, being in control, 
is the key to the suffering unto death. Why did you never consider the real possibility that it's the addiction to self-determination that makes dying so hard to bear? Mm -hmm. In other words, I was interviewed in a ra local radio station here years ago, and they said, the leadoff question is, what is it about death that's so hard in our time? And I said, what is it about our time that makes dying so hard <laughs> there? Yeah. And so if you don't wonder about the prejudice you bring to dying and you advocate for euthanasia, you end up missing the point entirely. And what you've done in my country is legalize a system now where soon enough, nobody will have a memory of a time when you couldn't choose your own death. That will be gone as a lived memory, number one. Number two, the death phobia that informed the seeking after euthanasia in the first place remains intact, goes underground for another couple of generations. And when it, when it appears again, I can't even guess what form it'll take. You know, the struggle around euthanasia was our great opportunity to wonder about the nature of our death phobia, but the wonder never really happened. We were just looking for another solution to the thing we didn't want to think about. And that's what we've got now in my country and in other places. And lo and behold, children will grow up with the idea that death is unendurable without the guarantee of euthanasia alongside it to make it doable and to make it mine. And that's what I meant at the beginning when I said, when you personalize dying, you leech it of its profundity and you turn it into another spectacle of self-determination. So basically, euthanasia becomes the, the death of the hydrophonic spirituality life. <laughs> In a way, right? So it's, just, it's, it's a baseless, soilless, without the compost of life. You control, you control, you try to control the living and avoiding the, yeah. We should say as a PS, I'm not saying for one minute that there's not times of such cruel physical pain and so on, that this becomes unendurable. I'm not saying that there's no such thing. Of course, there's such a thing. Yeah. And look, I'm not a moral authority. And so can I, can I just dictate when euthanasia should be applicable and when it's not? No, these are things are, are subtle and you have to work them out. And, you know, it's, it's a cultural labor to do so. But I do stand be beside the idea that the legalization of euthanasia by a death phobic culture preserves the death phobia while appearing to change it. So dying well, living well, dying well, uh, living deeply, how is all this connected? I hate how questions. So um, let's see. How, how do I phrase a, a, a non-how question? So like, is there, and this is very Western question. <laughs> oh God. Any skill that we can develop during our life while we are alive that can prepare us for that? Is there any spiritual practice that can prepare us in any way? And I know I hear your voice, your relationship <laughs> to that is not as you dying. <laughs> um, ah, it's such a beautiful grappling. 
because everything becomes futile the moment I say it. <laughs> and yet I would like, yeah, is there, what does it mean even to live deeply or how is that connected to dying in surrender? And Okay, okay. a lot of words. Yeah, this last thing is too vast. You know, okay. no human being should pretend to have an answer to how do you live deeply. Yeah. But, um, you know, the idea of readiness, let's talk about that for a second. The idea of preparedness. Um, you know that this is approached as if it were an insurance policy that you can take out against the slings and arrows of outrageous fortune, against the vagaries. That's what readiness is supposed to do. If you're ready, you can't be trapped, you can't be betrayed, you can't be cornered, you can't be surprised. This is the prejudice that surrounds the notion. So rather than thinking in terms of readiness for a future event, you investigate your understanding of time and you realize that your death problem is your time problem because you think your death is in the future. The event is in the future, but your death is here now. Wow. It's an utterly knowable fact, right? You could say your death is a knowable thing, not much known. And it's, and it's the aching place between those two extremes where we tend to live our lives in North America from what I've seen. So, if your death is in the present, then you have nothing to wait for. You don't need a terminal diagnosis to make it truer. You don't need a, a pandemic to make it truer. It doesn't do so. Are we not seeing six or seven or eight months into this thing now that the murmuring in, in the interviews that I was doing three or four months ago, people were absolutely certain that this was the magic bullet about fatality that I'd been advocating for years and now it's come to pass and we're going to have such a death-informed world hereafter that we can't help but you know get on the right track and so on. And you, you can see that this is not true, that there's nothing about a near miss that helps us understand fatality. And that's what this plague is. It's a near miss. It's not nearly as bad as it was being imagined to be in February and March and April. I'm not saying it's not bad, but in terms of the number of fatalities across the world, it's far short of what people were anticipating who were in positions of power and authority at the time and were scared shitless by the possibilities, right? And that near miss, I have to say, is doing none of us any good. Why not? Because we're already hankering after the time before the plague. Uh, when you hear this over and over again, getting back to normal, when in fact it was normal that got us to the place in the first place. That's how it happened. Okay, whatever the particular mechanics in China, and I don't pretend to know, but I don't have to know to wonder this aloud with you, that the, that the dying that we could have been learning about seems to require our personal death to happen. When in actual fact, everyone's death before your own. And finally, the understanding of the omnipresence of death alone is all the chance you need 
to approach that, that throne of wonder and uncertainty with some humility and some curiosity and some gratitude. That's the big one. So maybe I'll end off this little piece with this. I've been asked, as you could guess many times over the years, whether or not all that exposure to death in my working life <clears throat> somehow really unhinged me badly or, or turned me dark and cynical and uh, morbid, et cetera, and so on. And my answer consistently was something like this. Do you know what it did to me? It made me want to be alive. That's what it did to me. Other things too. But I can promise you this. I have seen what not being alive is. And the consequence of that on my better days obliges me to inhabit the present fact of my life with a kind of intensity that makes me hard to be with. Like here. That's where all this is coming from. I was exposed enough, not just to my personal death, but to the endings of fellow humans by the hundreds. And the consequence of that has been that I long after life, even though I'm so very much alive. That's what I meant by longing. It's, there's some magic in it, but it's not benign magic. It's, it's, it's very consequential and it's not going to submit to our control over it. That's very clear. But one way to be alive as a practice is to remember your death and to befriend it as an adversary and therefore as an ally, not as an enemy. The presence of the adversary prompts better and deeper understanding in you. The presence of an enemy prompts your prejudice to come again and again and again. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen. Thank you. I cannot say how, 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 how I am, how honored I am. I, how honored I am that you are on the same planet as me, brother. Amen. Yeah, the word you say always touched me deeply in any way, shape, or form. Thank you, brother. Thank you, too. And thank you to Stephen Jenkinson, Zaya, and Maurizio Bonazzo for such a powerful conversation. And now we bring you a song recording from Stephen Jenkinson and Gregory Hoskins, and the song is called Shadow. And you can download their two new albums entitled Dark Roads and Rough Guides over at the website orphanwisdom.com, and we'll have links in the show notes. Thank you for listening to The Sand Podcast. Be well.
I'm 